Thank you very much. Uh, and I apologize to any fans of Michel Olbeck that might be here because I cut him out. He was, it was going too long. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk about uh, Charles de Konig and David Foster Wallace. Uh, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the publication of Infinite Jess, which was the magnum opus of uh, David Foster Wallace, an American novelist. Infinite Jest is more than a thousand pages long. It has uh, over 300 end notes. It's a very intricate novel about um, students at an elite tennis academy, inmates of a halfway house for drug addicts, uh, and a group of Quebecois separatist terrorists. And it's all taking place in a dystopian near future um, North America uh, in which an organization of North American nations has been formed, ONAN for short. Um, <laughs> and um, in which calendar years are named after corporate sponsors and things like this. It's uh, the trends that uh, Wallace saw in the 1990s have been sort of continued into the near future. And these Quebecois terrorists, the weapon that they want to use is actually a film that's so entertaining that it distracts people to death. So it's a... Uh, um, Wallace writes this in the 1990s at sort of the apogee of the neoliberal triumph, uh, right after the end, well not right after, but shortly after the end of the Cold War, um, after Francis Fukuyama has already proclaimed the end of history. Uh, but the book is about this deep sadness and loneliness uh, in this apparent moment of triumph, the deep sadness of um, triumphant American culture. In a book review that Wallace wrote while he was working on Infinite Jest, he says something about the book he was reviewing that he could have said about the book he was writing. Like, quote, It, that is the book, can map or picture the desacralized and paradoxical solipsism of U.S. persons in a cattle herd culture that worships only the transparent eye of guiltily passive solipsists and skeptics trying to warm soft hands at the computer-enhanced fire of data in an information age where received image and enforced eros replace active countenance or sacral mystery as ends value meaning." End of quote. So Wallace, by um, extending the trends of his moment into the near future, and sort of exaggerating them, tries to show the full horror of the meaninglessness of individualistic culture. Um, but there's another horror that's in the no that sort of the shadow of which is in the novel. Um, namely, there's a kind of fear that this extreme individualism will will prove unbearable and it will flip into a totalitarian tyranny. So um, the Organization of North American Nations is led by uh, President Johnny Gentle, uh, an entertainer turned politician who has come to power by pledging to get rid of the mountains of filth produced by limitless 
consumerism in the United States by creating a giant wasteland near the Canadian border and then forcing Canada to annex this uh, part of um, the northeast of the US. Uh, he, the organization of North American nations that he founds is called an experialist organization rather than imperialist because it consists in ceding territory rather than uh, conquering territory. But if you read about um, Johnny Gentle, it's hard not to think of Donald Trump. Uh, neither of them uh, are, are particularly serious characters. It's sort of this clownish uh, egomania that uses the contradictions and anxieties and so on that are present in the culture to, uh, to gratify itself. But there are other voices in the novel that give kind of a more serious uh, argument, as it were, for totalitarianism than gentle. There is, for example, uh, the figure of Gerhard Stitt, who is in the elite tennis academy. Stitt is sort of the mastermind. He's a German intellectual. Uh, and I quote a passage about him. Stitt, like most Europeans of his generation, anchored from infancy to certain permanent values, which, yes, okay, granted, may admittedly have a whiff of proto-fascist potential about them, but which do, nevertheless, the values, anchor nicely the soul and course of a life. Old world patriarchal stuff like honor, discipline, and fidelity to some larger unit. Stitt was educated in pre-unification gymnasium under the rather Kanto-Hegelian idea that junior athletics was basically just training for citizenship, that junior athletics was about learning to sacrifice the hot, narrow imperatives of the self, the needs, the desires, the fears, the multiform cravings of the individual appetitive will to the larger imperatives of a team, okay, the state, and a set of delimiting rules, okay, the law, end of quote. And this is a vision that, unlike the um, absurd buffoonish vision of, of Johnny Gentle slash Donald Trump, this is a vision that's able to convince a lot of his students. So one of his students, uh, who's named Ortho the Darkness Stice, uh, is instructing a group of even younger students, uh, and he says the following. It's about discipline and sacrifice and honor to something way bigger than your personal ass. He'll mention America. He meaning Stitt. He's talking about Stitt. He'll talk patriotism, and don't think he won't. He'll talk about its patriotic play that's the high road to the thing. He's not American, but I tell you straight out right here, he makes me proud to be American. My Nakinda, he'll say it's how to learn to be a good American during a time, boys, when America isn't good its own self. End quote. And above all, looking down on everything, is the Quebecois terrorist uh, Rémi Marat. Marat is sitting in a wheelchair for most of the novel on a high ridge above Tucson, Arizona. He's looking down on the city. Um, and he's talking to, to Steeply, who's an imperialist American secret agent. And their conversation <coughs> sort of looks down on the whole action of the novel. And, uh, makes its themes explicit. Steeply, the, the secret agent, presents the liberal individualist vision 
in which what ultimately matters is individual desire and its satisfaction. Marat, on the other hand, presents an ideal of human life as consisting in giving oneself to a higher cause, a community of which one is a part. They discuss the Trojan War at one point, and Marat disagrees both with Steepley and with Homer about what the cause of the Trojan War is. Quote, I can't do the accent, but he speaks in this kind of uh, French-Canadian pidgin English. Uh, the point is that what launches vessels of war is the state and community and its interests. Marat said, without heat, tiredly. You only wish to enjoy to pretend for yourself that the love of one woman could do this, launch so many vessels of alliance. End quote. But steeply counters that one should not be so sure. Individual passion can be so strong that one is willing to give all for it. The fanatically patriotic wheelchair assassins of southern Quebec, that's the terrorist group that uh, Marat is a member of, underestimate the power of individual passion. Marat latches onto the word fanatic. And he says fanatic is derived from the Latin for temple, fanum, and means literally worshiper at the temple. All of us, he argues, have a temple, something that we love, something that we invest with faith. It is thus of supreme importance what we choose as our temple. For this choice determines all else. No, he says. <coughs> all other of you say free choices follow from this. And to choose an individual beloved person as that object of worship is irrational. Quote, die for one person, this is craziness. Persons change, leave, die become ill, they leave, lie, go mad, have sickness, betray you, die. Your nation outlives you, a cause outlives you. You USAs do not seem to believe you may each choose what to die for. Love of a woman, the sexual, it bends back in on the self, makes you narrow, maybe crazy. Choose with care. Love of your nation, your country and people, it enlarges, it enlarges the heart something bigger than the self." End quote. Steeply questions whether it really is a matter of, of choice, uh, what the temple is at which you worship. He says, what if you just love without deciding? You just do. You see her, and in that instant you are lost to sober account keeping and cannot choose but to love. And Marat answers with a sniff of disdain, quote, then in such a case, your temple is self and sentiment. Then, in such an instance, you are a fanatic of desire, a slave to your individual subjective narrow self-sentiments, a citizen of nothing. You become a citizen of nothing. You are by yourself and alone, kneeling to yourself. In a case such as this, you become the slave who believes he is free, the most pathetic of bondage, not tragic, no songs. You believe you would die twice for another, but in truth you would die only for your alone self, its sentiment." End quote. And Marat's critique of American individualism is borne out in the rest of the novel, which describes in, in harrowing and painful, although often also comic, detail the loneliness and suffering and slavery to base passions that uh, 
run rampant in individualist society. But Wallace does not portray Marat's terrorist sect with its austere Spartan spirit as an attractive alternative. At least on my reading, Wallace thinks that American society is ripe for a turn to totalitarianism and that this would be even worse than what they've got. <clears throat> so Infinite Jest gives narrative plausibility to the attractiveness of totalitarian ideas and movements in an individualistic culture. But of course, um, Steeply's individualism and Marat's totalitarianism are not the only options. Wallace himself gives hints at a third option, but I want to turn now to a philosopher who gave an account of the deficiencies of individualistic and totalitarian thought and of how these deficiencies should, at least uh, at the speculative level, be overcome. And this is Charles de Conic, um, a Belgian-Canadian Thomist philosopher who taught at the University of Laval in Quebec um, in the early part of the 20th century. De Koning's seminal work uh, was called On the Primacy of the Common Good Against the Personalists. Um, and it was written in 1943, uh, toward the end of the war, and was one of several ambitious projects uh, within Catholic philosophy at the time that were trying to articulate, as it were, a third option apart from individualism and totalitarianism. And de Koning's, uh project is developed partly in opposition to one of the other projects, as the, the subtitle of De Koenig means by personalism. Personalism is a term that can refer to all kinds of different philosophies. Um, personalism became popular during the war, especially in France, among um, Catholic thinkers who were affected by the anti-totalitarian reaction that the war produced, that especially the atrocities of German National Socialism produced. Um, you can see kind of oscillation in, especially in the first half of the 20th century, uh, between individualistic positions and uh, totalitarian positions. So you have uh, the liberalism of sort of ascendant capitalism in the long 19th century turns over into this uh, blood and soil patriotism of World War I. When World War I breaks out, people are you know, celebrating in the streets because at last they have a cause that they can, you know, greater than the self and the, that they can give themselves to. Then after World War I, you have a counter-reaction, you have um, liberalism of the interwar period, and then that tips over again uh, into various fascist uh, and national socialist um, regimes. And then, of course, the, the reaction against that uh, comes as well. And that's um, what's relevant for personalism. Because these reactions have a lot of um, influence on uh, Catholic philosophers as well. Jacques Maritain was, was mentioned in the first session. And he, even in his own life, you can see kind of this oscillation. Right after his conversion to Catholicism, he becomes an ad adherent of Action Francaise, which is a, a right-wing 
authoritarian movement. Uh, but then when that's condemned by the Holy See, he becomes an ardent Democrat. And he was friends with a lot of, of uh, important personalists, including Emmanuel Mounier, who is, is kind of the most famous personalist. But Maritain develops his own version, a kind of Thomistic version of personalism. Um, and it's based on a distinction that Maritain makes between individual and person. He says, this is a quote from Maritain's book, Three Reformers. The word individual is common to man and beast, to plant, microbe, and atom. Individuality as such is based on the peculiar needs of matter, the principle of indivi individuation, because it is the principle of division, because it requires to occupy a position and have a quantity by which that which is there. So that insofar as we are individuals, we are only a fragment of matter, a part of this universe, distinct, no doubt, but a part. But then uh, person refers to man's spiritual nature, by which he transcends, according to Maritain, uh, the entire universe. And as a person, man is not a part, but only a whole. And this has political consequences. So quote, again from Maritain's book, Three Reformers. According to the principles of St. Thomas, it is because he is first an individual of a species that man, having need of the help of his fellows to perfect his specific activity, is consequently an individual of the city, a member of society. And on this count, he is subordinated to the good of his city as to the good of the whole, the common good, which as such is more divine and therefore better deserving the love of each than his very own life. But if it is a question of the destiny which belongs to a man as a person, the relation is inverse, and it is the human city which is subordinate to his destiny. Thus the individual in each one of us, taken as an individual member of the city, exists for his city, and ought at need to sacrifice his life for it, as for instance in a just war. But taken as a person, whose destiny is God, the city exists for him namely, for the advancement of the moral and spiritual life." End quote. Um, so the error of individualism, according to Maritain, is that it accords to the individual the rights that belong uh, by nature to the person. But since the individual is in fact a part of the social whole, he argues that individualism has a kind of inevitable tendency to tip over into totalitarianism. Quote again from Maritain, we shall see individualism culminate quite naturally in the monarchic tyranny of a Hobbes, the democratic tyranny of a Rousseau, or the tyranny of the provident state and the God state of a Hegel and his disciples. End quote. Ugh, I'm running out of time. But um, now we get to the, the, the real point of the whole thing, which is De Konig. So De Konig disagrees with Maritain, although he doesn't actually mention that Maritain in his book, it's it's pretty clear that he's directing it against um, sort of pop maritanism in, in Canada at the time. And uh, De Konig argues that the principle that the personal good of man transcends his common good concedes too much to individualism. So that maritan's position, in fact, although it's supposed to tra uh, transcend individualism, in fact, amounts to a variety of individualism. Um, 
De Konig argues that the reason why personalism goes astray is that it considers the person and society in their being, in what they are, rather than in their end, their goal, their perfection, their telos. So De Konig says uh, the good has to be understand has to be understood as uh, if Maritain were a better Thomist, he would understand it always as a final cause uh, and consider it always as such. The common good, De Konig says, is not the good of a society considered as a kind of super individual, a giant substance composed of substances. Rather, the common good is a common end, a common goal, pursued and shared in by all its members. The highest goods of man are common goods, goods that he cannot have by himself, but only in communion with others. He distinguishes between common goods and private goods. He says a private good, uh, say food or clothing or money or something like this, a private good is something that is diminished when it's divided or shared. The share that I have of uh, a cake cannot be had by the rest of you. You can have other pieces of the cake. But if I have part of it, I appropriate it to myself. And this kind of good is ordered to me. Really, I'm the end of the private good. It's not my end. I don't give myself for the, for the cake. The cake is for me. Yeah. But with common goods, it's the opposite. They, they're not divided by being shared. Say truth, justice, peace. These you would consider common goods. If I know a truth and then I communicate this truth to someone else, then I don't diminish my share of the truth. We both have the entirety of this good. Uh, and in fact, the highest common goods can only be had uh, if, if they're shared. So peace uh, is something, for example, that uh, it doesn't make any sense to say, yeah, we have peace in my family, but only I have the peace. Right? Everyone else doesn't. It's the kind of good that you can only have by sharing. And it's not diminished by being shared. Um, and these goods are something that are uh, that we order ourselves to. It's not like the cake that's there for me, but in a certain sense, we are for the common goods. It's paradoxical because in one sense, they're really personal goods. This is a very key point uh, in the whole debate that then breaks out between De Konig and various friends of Maritain who attack him uh, after this book is published. The common good is really my good. It's a good, the, the good of truth or something, it's a good that I attain to and share. It's good for me. But it's not for me in the sense that a piece of cake is for me. I am, in a truer sense, I am for it. Um, so, skipping over a little bit. The highest common good of all is God himself, who's uh, communicated among all who attain to the beatific vision. And here you see the, uh, the reason why De Konig is so angry at the personalists, because if, if uh, this good, God, the highest good of the person, is not a common good, then that would mean that he would be ordered to me. That would be to subordinate God to my uh, satisfaction, as it were. It would be an egocentric um, vision of um, the good and of human life. So De Konig quotes an important passage from St. Thomas. I'll just quote part of it here. 
about how we relate to a common good. Now, one can love the good of a city, civitas, you could say, a political community, in two ways. In one way, to possess it. In another, that it might be preserved. If someone loves the good of a city in order to have and own it, he is not a good political man. Because in this way, even a tyrant loves the good of a city in order to dominate it, which is to love oneself more than the city. He wants this good for himself, not for the city. But to love the good of the city that it might be kept and defended, this is truly to love the city, and this makes a person a good political person, so much so that some expose themselves to the danger of death and neglect their private good in order to preserve or increase the good of the city. In the same way, to love the good that is participated in by the blessed, that is, by those who uh, attain to the vision of God, to love it so as to have or possess it does not establish the right relation between a person and blessedness, because even evil people want this good. But to love that good according to itself, that it may remain and be shared out, and that nothing be done against this good, this gives to a person the right relation to that society of the blessed, and this is love, caritas, which loves God for his own sake and the neighbors who are capable of blessedness as oneself. De Koning's conception can show the deficiencies of both individualism and totalitarianism and why one is liable to flip into the other. Both individualism and totalitarianism are founded on the same misunderstanding of the common good. In both, the common good is seen as a good of someone else or of something else. A good that is not really the good of the members of society, but just the good of society. An external good that is in some way opposed to my individual good. In individualism, the common good, thus misunderstood, is then subordinated to the private goods of individuals, becoming an instrument of individual desires. In totalitarianism, on the other hand, the individual is subordinated to the good of the collective, thus debasing the human person to the status of a means to an extrinsic good. Since man is made for common goods that are really his personal goods, totalitarian regimes will always be experienced as alienating and enslaving. And thus persons in totalitarian societies long for the apparent freedom of individualism. But since man is made for personal goods, which are common goods, individualism will always be experienced as unsatisfying and pusillanimous, and this leads to the possibility of totalitarianism. That's all. Thank you.